in the book, we, we coined it the growth equation, and the growth equation is stress plus rest equals growth. That Triathlon Show, episode 28. Hello everybody and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. As always, I'm your host Michael and as I was telling you about on the last episode, I'm super excited about today's interview. I could have talked to my interviewee for today's show for hours on end, Brad Stolberg, uh, who is uh, the co-author together with uh, Steve Magnus of the upcoming book Peak Performance, which talks about performance in both uh, sports and athletics, but also life in general, or maybe more so, or equally. I guess the main point I should say is that how the things that make peak performers in both sports and in business and in art and in all sorts in uh, science in all sorts of fields how they have some certain uh, attributes or certain things that they do in common and those are the things that we're going to talk about in today's show so you will find this super useful for your triathlon but also for your life in general and i'm now recording this intro and will be recording the outro just a day after interviewing brad and i'm still fired up about the talk and and i'm already thinking about how i can implement this and i'm just uh climbing on the walls to you know waiting for to getting my hands on the book and be able to to dig into it and read it it's um absolutely going to be super exciting i have no doubt that it's going to be my favorite book of the year but just before we dive into the interview uh so that you don't tune out and think that this is going to be a whole lot of uh voodoo fluff or or something like that or weird things this is all based on science and a short ex- excerpt from the website says about the book that Peak performance shows you how strengthening your ability to solve complex cognitive problems is similar to strengthening your ability to lift weights. That the world's best thinkers and the world's best powerlifters follow the same process to elicit growth. It investigates the influence of routine and environment and explains how and why the pre-game warm-ups of all-star athletes, artists and public speakers are so alike and so effective. By merging cutting-edge science with captivating real-life stories, peak performance reveals the key practices that drive great performance and teaches you how you can apply them in your own life. These practices include alternating between periods of intense work and rest, developing and harnessing purpose, priming the body and mind for enhanced productivity. These are the three overarching themes of the book, and this is uh, what we dive into in great detail with Brad. And I'm not going to make this intro any longer because this intro goes on for quite a while anyway. So let's just dive into it, shall we? All right, welcome to That Triathlon Show, Brad Stolberg. Yes, glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so I've been teasing this episode already for a couple of episodes to the audience of of the show because I've been looking forward to this. Uh, I've actually been reading your peak performance newsletter for well over a year, I think, for 
pretty much as long as it's been around i think i, I jumped on pretty early but basically what you and uh, your co-author of the book uh, peak performance steve magnus have been doing is for over a year you've been sending us uh, articles about what uh, exceptional athletes and performers on all stages of life like scientists and uh, businessmen and artists are doing to to achieve those great performances and that is now what you have distilled into this book that is called peak performance and that is what we're gonna going to have a chat about today so i'm going to ask you to introduce yourself shortly but first real quick why is this book relevant for the audience of of this podcast which is mainly age group triathletes so i think it's it's relevant for two reasons i'd say that the first reason is that the the findings in the book should absolutely apply to one's development as an athlete um, the second reason, and perhaps the, the equally, if not more important one, is that many of the findings in this book are actually focused outside of sport. So for an age group triathlete, presumably they are making a living or investing lots of time in something other than just triathlon. And I think that what this book really highlights is that many of the same practices that you might apply to sport are actually quite beneficial if applied outside of sport as well. Yeah, that's a very good and nice and concise summary of it. So now, yeah, just to tell the audience, we're also potentially going to have Steve on, but he's in a wrapping up meeting, so it's uh, not certain at this point. So, but uh, Brad will definitely be able to tell us all about this topic anyway. Steve, being Steve Magnus, who is also the author of the science of running, I was actually on a run with a with a buddy of mine a few days ago and talking about this upcoming interview and telling him because he's a, uh, originally from the US actually, even though I live in Finland and uh, so I was asking him if he knew Steve Magnus because that was one of the first uh, experiences I had with uh, the running literature after Jack Daniels I think but uh, yeah anyway Steve might jump on but uh, let's now talk about your background Brad so uh, so what, what have you been doing and, and what uh, made you write this book what has made you an expert in this area? Yeah so long before I got into writing professionally, I worked as a management consulting firm for one of the large management consulting companies. It's called McKinsey & Company. And I absolutely loved the work and was quite intellectually challenged by it. My problem was that I could never really turn it off. So I would grind and work, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 hour weeks quite regularly some of it was dictated by the work itself. It was a, a quite high-paced job, but some of it was also just my own inability to, um, to hit pause or to check out of work. So even when I wasn't at work, my mind was always racing on the things that I was working on at work. And what ultimately ended up happening was after about two years, I just started to feel really burnt out. The pace and, and the level that I was trying to hold myself to simply became unsustainable. So from there, I went to graduate school and I ended up studying public health and uh, became quite interested in the science of, uh, of not just medicine, but really of health and wellness and, and what it takes to thrive. And um, I've kind of married that with also the science of performance. So not only how can one be healthy, but how can one get the most out of themselves and, and perform quite well while maintaining their health? Uh, I think that the two naturally go hand in hand. So from there, I started writing and writing about uh, these kinds of topics. And um, I'm very fortunate now to have columns at both Outside Magazine and New York Magazine, which really it's a privilege. I get to call up very, very smart people that 
either study this stuff or live this stuff and um, and discuss it with them and try to take away uh, the, the key insights. Yeah. And uh, just quickly, what was your age when you were at McKinsey and uh, got burnt out? So I started right after I finished up undergraduate school. So I would have been around 22 at the time. And then by the time I was 24, so after about two years there, yeah, that's when I started to just realize that it was an unsustainable clip that I was going at. Yeah, and I can imagine that that's not a, a too unusual career path for many talented uh, undergraduates or undergraduates that graduate and get a good job, and then but then just uh, very ambitious and, and end up working a lot at these uh, big Inc. 500 companies and so on and, and get burnt out, or am I wrong? No, I'd agree. I think that you're spot on. I think it is common. And I need to be careful. Like What I always try to make very clear is there's nothing wrong with McKinsey, per se. I actually really admire the company, the firm, the people that work there. I think knowing what I know now, I could probably go back there and have a full, long career there. It's just that at the time, it had more to do with me than the job. Like I said, I just had an inability to press pause and, and to, to step back and rest and recharge. And I think that's, that's what happens. Certainly, there are job atmospheres that are pretty toxic in and of themselves, But I think a lot of driven, ambitious people, like you said, right out of school, they end up doing this to themselves. Yeah. So let's now switch gears a bit and start talking about the book and its contents. So there are the way I understand it, although the book isn't released yet, we should make that clear. It's uh, going to be released in early June. Is that right? 6th of June or something? Yes. So the book comes out June 6th. But if you end up releasing this podcast, so if listeners are tuning in before June 6th, um, the book is available for pre-order either online or, or should be from your local bookstore as well. Yes. Okay. So that's what I've been doing. And I've been having a look at uh, a PDF uh, highlight reel that you've been creating and, and the contents of the book. And there seem to be three main themes of the book. And that would be rest and stress would be the one. And then having a purpose, developing and harnessing a purpose. And uh, finally, priming the body and mind for enhanced productivity. Yes, that's the arc of the book, exactly. Yeah, so let's dive into each one of them. Uh, so starting with rest and stress, what can you tell us about that and its role in performance? Yes, so in the book, we, we coined it the growth equation. And the growth equation is stress plus rest equals growth. And I think that the, the simplest way to explain it is to think about how you'd make a muscle, like your biceps muscle, stronger. So if you pick up way too heavy of a weight and you try to lift it, odds are you're going to throw out your back or injure your biceps muscle. You simply won't be able to lift it without harming yourself. If you pick up too light of a weight, you know, a one or two pound weight, hardly anything at all, you could sit there and lift it all day, but your muscle is not going to get stronger because you're simply not applying enough of a stimulus or enough of a stressor to your muscle. So it's long been known in very basic exercise physiology, exercise science, that the way to make a muscle bigger is to find the right level of stress, so something that challenges a muscle and sometimes even pushes it to the brink of failure, but not so stressful that it harms the muscle, and then to follow up that stressor with a period of rest and recovery, and it's during that period of rest that the body can absorb, adapt to the stressor, become stronger, and then eventually take on more stress. So, What we found in researching and reporting on the book is that that basic rhythm, that basic cycle, applies to so much more than just growing a muscle. 
So thinking very narrowly in, in, in the sporting world, it also applies to endurance development. And we can get to that maybe in more detail a little bit later, how it might apply specifically to triathlon, but the word is called periodization. So that you have periods of training where you're really pushing yourself and doing hard workouts, but if you don't follow them up by easy workouts or rest, odds are you're going to overcook yourself, overtrain, get injured, stagnate, not get better. What's fascinating is that we learn that creative thinking and intellectual development follows the same pattern. So people that are mathematicians or groundbreaking innovative scientists and researchers or entrepreneurs or artists, they work in a very, very similar structure where they'll have periods where they dive very, very deeply into their work and they focus with, with the utmost intensity, but then they step away from their work for short periods of breaks throughout the day and then throughout the course of a week, month, year, for longer periods of rest. So we, we've come to call it almost the universal growth equation. We say that really, regardless of what capability you want to grow, following this pattern of stress and rest tends to elicit the best result. And uh, for those uh, like cognitive people that, that are not doing it, we know, and the listeners of the show will know about uh, rest and stress for endurance athletes, but it's interesting, as you say, with, with business people and, uh, and uh, scientists that they follow the same principles. What is that based on? Is there some research on that or how did you come to that conclusion? So we came to that conclusion based on both our reporting. So just speaking with, with world-class performers in these different domains, but yes, also um, on the research. And what the research shows is that moments of creativity or insight or, or what kind of might be called like an aha moment, they tend to occur and in, in follow a pretty standard pattern, which is um, a period of immersion. So deep focus, full immersion in working on whatever it is that you're working on, or perhaps practicing if you're practicing music or painting, making art, uh, followed by what's called an incubation period which is when you would step away from your craft and quite literally in your brain, you're letting what you had been working on just incubate. And then it's during that period of incubation or shortly after that insight tends to occur. So you have a breakthrough moment, you figure out how to solve the problem, or for an entrepreneur, it might be how to extend the product that you're working on or tweaking it. Or for an artist, it might be how to express an emotion that you otherwise hadn't been able to figure out how to express. So, you know, we say that people often think that it's when you're sitting at the whiteboard or the easel or in a meeting really, really effortfully focusing on something that that's when you improve. But what we found is it's almost like training. That's like setting the table for you to improve. But it's not actually until you step away intellectually that you're, or creatively, I should say as well, that, that a breakthrough is likely. Do you have one uh, good example of that that comes to mind that you can share with us? So I think the most common example is just the power of a short walk. So what we've heard constantly from individuals that are using their brains more than their bodies to perform is that when they feel that they're reaching an impasse or a point when they're stuck, rather than sit there and try to force through it, um, just getting up and taking like a five to 15 minute walk almost always brings them some clarity on whatever it is that they were working through. And one of, uh, one of my favorite studies in the whole book, it came out of Stanford University, it's called Give Your Ideas Some Legs. They actually tested this. So they had uh, two groups of people, and both groups were basically to engage in a very mentally fatiguing, draining task. And one group took a break where they just sat still, and I think it was <laughs> they, they basically stared at the wall. Another group took a break where they walked around. And the group that did the short walk, it was just 6 to 15 minutes, 
when both groups finished their breaks, they were tested on creative insight. And the group that took the walk had something like a 40% increase in creative insight over those that didn't. Wow, that's so this amazing. Is a, this is a very practical thing, you know, like a, a five to, to 10 minute walk. And it's kind of paradoxical because you'd think, especially if you're on a deadline or you're feeling quite stressed about what you're working on, that you just need to stare at the screen or keep at the whiteboard until you work through to a solution. But oftentimes, the best way to get to the solution is to step away. Yeah, yeah. For us triathletes, uh, I, I can think of how how that can apply to your in our day to day life. That you're working towards a deadline, and then you can push yourself. Uh, a big step towards that deadline compared to just sitting at your desk and uh, making small progress when you take that break. But then also, as it's well known that uh, that just sitting all day is uh, detrimental for for performance and how you will do in your in your training. If you do if you train in the evening after work, for example, and you will be not not be as mobile as you would otherwise. So so there are like two two great benefits to that. The first one may be a bit bigger if. You're still making a living off your work, of course, but but even from the triathlon uh, point of view, there is another benefit to that. And I, I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if if your listeners and perhaps even you, like I know in myself, so I I'm an endurance athlete, and and my physical practice is an enormous part of my life. And um, I almost always will have my ideas for the kinds of articles that I want to write or the people I want to interview. Rarely do they pop into my mind when I'm at my desk. They almost always pop into my mind when I'm out on a run um, or, you know, I find like finishing a run. It's almost like I've allowed my brain to completely check out because it's been focused on the run. And then, aha, here pops this random thought that will then lead to a magazine article that I write. Do you have a system, by the way, I'm interested in how you uh, record or collect those IDs? Because, yeah, if, if I would have uh, remembered all my IDs that I've had on runs or on bike rides and actually act, acted upon some of the best ones, I'm sure I would be a millionaire by now, but <laughs> I'm not because I tend to forget them. It's so, so funny that you mentioned that. So I do not have a solution. So if any listeners do, I'd love it if you ought to, you know, if you'd email me. So, I mean, the easiest solution is to run with a phone. But I, I personally, I view my run as actually a chance to completely step outside of being connected. So I don't run with any device other than a watch if I'm doing a specific workout. So what often will happen is I'll have a thought. And if it occurs early on in a workout or in the middle of it, it, it can almost be a little tiring and stressful because I'm sitting there trying to finish the workout, but I don't want to forget the thing that I'm thinking of. So if it's a really good thought, what I'll do is I'll just focus on it. And I'll just say for 30 minutes, I'm going to keep on thinking about this thought. If it's a medium thought, I let it go. But like you, like I probably left like the, the next great American novel out on a run because I forgot that thought that bubbled up into my mind yeah yeah but that's that's an interesting point too about really focusing on it and how it makes it difficult to perform the workout as well we have had uh samuel marcora who's a professor yeah i know samuel well he we we spoke with him at length for the book Okay, awesome. Yeah, because we were talking about brain endurance training, and that seems to kind of apply to this as well. When you need to focus on that, even if it's—I know that he actually said on the episode that that there are specific uh, definitions for the kind of cognitive thinking that you need to be doing for this to, at least uh, as backed, backed by science, to be working. But uh, but there might be some uh, some at least analogies between between these two situations. All right. Yeah, I mean, so I think that- another another thing that athletes can do is so if you're doing a, a a cycling workout on the trainer, 
I think you can keep an iPad or an iPhone or even a notebook if you're not sweating too much and just kind of jot down the idea or handwrite it. You know, I know in addition to exercise, another time when I tend to have my best ideas is when I first wake up in the morning or even in the middle of the night, I'll wake up to go to the bathroom and some idea will just percolate in my mind. So again, I don't like to sleep with my cell phone nearby. I, I tend that it messes with my ability to sleep well, but I do sleep with a notebook and a pen next to my bed so that if an idea comes, I can just jot it down and go back to sleep. So there are definitely little little ways around uh, around being able to collect these ideas. Yeah, yeah, perfect. All right, so the next uh, overarching theme of the book is developing and harnessing a purpose. So what's that all about? Yes. So this to me was one of the more fascinating findings in uh, in researching the book. And at its core, The power of developing a purpose, which is a statement or a set of core values that often represents your deepest belief and often has, for many people anyways, it has to do less with some kind of self-interested belief, but more with uh, a greater cause or a greater good, can act as an enormous performance enhancer. Just simply by, by having a purpose and reminding yourself of it, you can get more out of yourself than if you don't have such a statement that you, that you reflect on. There's a, a growing and emerging body of research, particularly in neuroscience and psychology, as, as to why and how the mechanisms this might work. I also think that if you were to ask just about anyone that if they were really struggling or in an uncomfortable situation or going through a challenge and they were doing it for themselves versus if they were doing it for someone beyond themselves, so someone that they really care about, a family member or a cause that's greater than themselves, most people that we asked that question to, almost everyone, said that they'd be willing to push harder and to take on more discomfort if what they were doing was benefiting some kind of greater cause. And I know that that's true for myself. Like I, I almost will always not give up on something that becomes challenging if I know the result of it will have a positive impact on others. Or if I'm just doing something for myself, even if it's to make money, if I get to a point where I'm just kind of not feeling it and it's it's going poorly and it's taking much more effort than I thought, uh, if the only beneficiary of it is me, I'm, I'm more likely to stop. Yeah. So uh, can you give us some examples of this? So one from the uh, athletics world or endurance world, for example, and one from outside of that realm? Yes. So... You know, one of my favorite examples of this is uh, after Craig Alexander won the Ironman World Championships. I believe he was 41 at the time, so he was the, the oldest champion and set a new course record. He was asked what he was thinking about towards the late stages of the marathon when the pain really came on and, and he was doing what many perceived to be impossible, right? He was shattering a course record and winning a championship. I'm almost positive it was 41. I'd have to look back. It might have been 40, but at, at a quite old age. And what Craig Alexander told the media after the race was that he was in this meditative state where he was just transfixed on thoughts of his family. So on what they had sacrificed for him to be able to train, to be at that level, and to be at Kona, and to have such a long career. And when you think about it, that's really not very uncommon. So many athletes, after they have mind-boggling breakthrough performances, they'll often say that they were thinking about something beyond themselves. When Meb Kofleski won the Boston Marathon, kind of a similar story, right? In an age where many people thought it was impossible, he said that throughout the whole race, he was thinking of the victims of the Boston bombing and how he could honor them by winning this race for his country. When Ashton Eaton set the world record, he had to run um, a very, very fast 1,500-meter run, and he had already locked up the gold medal, and the record that he was breaking was his own. So there was very little incentive to go out and crush himself. 
but he said that he was thinking about all the kids on couches that might be watching and how when he was growing up, he watched his role models and that inspired him to do what he does and he wanted to inspire them. So there's this very common theme of individuals uh, drawing motivation to, to really break through in sports by, by devoting their efforts to things that are beyond themselves. Yeah, quick, quick interjection here while I remember about Craig Alexander. There is a great 50-minute uh, documentary on YouTube from Aussies Abroad about his uh, career at Kona and also winning that third world championship, I think he was, and, and it also about his background and how they really struggled as a family at a young age when he wasn't making almost any money as a professional but still trying to make it at a top level. So, so yeah, if, if, you, if you watch that, it's a great documentary that I recommend all the listeners of the show go, go and watch, and that will... Uh, uh, give even more background to that story and it's it all makes sense so yeah uh, go on with what you're about to to tell us was there yeah. maybe some examples from outside of the athletics realm there are plenty but but I, you know before we get there and and pull me out if i get too deep into the scientific weeds but i think the science of of how this works at least the theoretical science is just so interesting so there are there are two models of fatigue that account for the psychological impact on what we experience as physical fatigue. So the first was put forth by a exercise scientist named Tim Noakes. And this was back in the early 90s. He called it the central governor of fatigue model. And what he said is that the brain shuts down the body when the body has more to give. And it's a protective mechanism. So the brain shuts down the body because the brain doesn't want the body to push itself into overdrive. The most extreme example would be organ failure. But there are less extreme examples, right? Like when we feel pain, that's an evolutionarily developed mechanism to tell us to slow down or to stop. So central governor model says that the brain shuts down the body to protect it. More recently, Samueli Marcora has proposed what he calls the psychobiological model of fatigue. And what he says is that at any given point, the brain is evaluating the perception of effort, so how hard something feels, against motivation. So how motivated are you to accomplish the goal or to, to continue forward. And what's so nice about this purpose is in both models, you can see how the power of purpose would be effective. So in the central governor model, if the brain shuts down the body to protect itself, but if you're in this meditative state and you're focusing on something that is beyond your quote unquote self, it'd be very easy to see how you're almost like the, the brain is no longer concerned with protecting the self because it's doing something for something that's greater than the self. Whereas in Dr. Marcora's model, similar but different mechanism, he would say that as the perception of effort goes up, if you can harness this power of motivation, so thinking of your family, or for some athletes it's religion, thinking of God, whatever it might be, that motivation will ultimately outweigh the perception of effort, or at least allow you to take on more perception of effort. So there are many debates happening as to which of those two models is more likely to be correct and the mechanism behind fatigue. I don't know enough, so I stay out of those debates. But I think that, you know, whether it's Professor Noakes or Professor Marcora, I think both would agree that if you can really harness this self-transcending purpose, as Steve and I call it in the book, it, it has an enormous effect on delaying fatigue or allowing you to fight through fatigue. Yeah, and uh, we go into that in detail in uh, episode 17 of the show with when we have Professor Marcora on and uh, talk about that. 
like a psychobiological model. So that was a, it's, it's still to this day one of the most downloaded episodes. So, so those that haven't listened to it can go back and uh, listen to that as well. But yeah, great points. And uh, I was going to ask you, do you, did you have, or I guess that you did, a purpose in mind for writing this book? Because it's been a big, long project and you're still in the midst of it and doing a lot of work for it. So what's your purpose? If you want to share, you don't have to if you don't. Yeah. So I, you know, I had a, Steve and I talked about this a lot because we said, well, wow, like in the book, we, we coach readers on how to develop a purpose using an evidence-based method for how you can think about your core values and ultimately put it into a single purpose statement. So the two of us came together and we absolutely had a purpose for writing the book, which, which dealt with just enhancing our own creativity and our own relationships with smart individuals, but more importantly, sharing what we learned with others so other individuals could avoid the episodes of burnout that we faced. So while I briefly shared my story at the start, um, Steve had a very similar story, albeit in running. He just burnt out quite badly as a runner. He was on pace to be a a world-class Olympic-level runner and completely burnt himself out. So a lot of our purpose in writing this book was was to help individuals kind of avoid the pitfalls that we fell into and um, sustain their performance in a more healthy way. Yeah. Okay. Thanks. And one more thing on that, this purpose uh, theme, how can uh, the listeners of this show apply this? You mentioned that you, you go into depth in that in the book, but let's uh, put uh, the rest of the life aside, but just from, for triathlon, how can a regular age grouper develop a purpose to maybe help them uh, push that a little bit further in their next uh, big goal race in triathlon? So I think it's real important to to specify between just paying lip service to this. So like, you know, coming up with a motivational quote, that's not going to do it when you're deep into the marathon of an Ironman and everything starts hurting. Like you really have to feel and believe in this purpose. So I would encourage uh, listeners to reflect on like why they do triathlon. And if the answer is just for themselves or to feed their ego, you know, it, we don't go into too much detail in the book, but I would argue that such like a self-centered purpose is is often detrimental, not just for performance, but psychologically later on. So I would ask listeners to to try to develop mechanisms and reasons that they do triathlon that go beyond themselves. So maybe it's to inspire their children if they have kids or to be a role model in the community. Lots of racers raise money for charity. So there are all kinds of ways that you can connect what is on its face, a fairly self-serving pursuit and make it something that is much more selfless. It can even just be having a moment of gratitude before a race. So to thank the volunteers that are at the course and to think like, I want to give my all to honor them. Um, Something that I tend to do late in races is uh, smile and thank all the volunteers. It's not too original. Chrissy Wellington, he's arguably the, the, one of the greatest Ironman, if not the greatest Ironman triathlete racer ever, she would always smile. She was known for smiling and thanking volunteers in her races. So I think that there are all kinds of ways to just slightly not be so self-focused um, that not only make you feel good, but they, they probably make you perform better as well. Yep, that's great. And uh, so the final overarching theme then would be priming the body and mind for enhanced productivity and going into a bit of the routines and and environment, I think, also falls under that umbrella. Yeah. So the final section of the book is um, is what we call priming, which is exactly what you said. So how do you get the mind and body ready to perform? And what we found here is that while there's no one right routine that works for everyone, there is a right routine for every individual. So there's some nuance, and I'll explain. 
uh, lots of the, the quote-unquote life hackers and the biohackers and, and the whole group of routine thinkers, they often deliver this message that if you just follow this routine, you'll break through. So you have to wake up at a certain hour and drink a certain kind of tea or coffee and do a certain kind of meditation and exercise for 30 minutes and then have this smoothie. And they go through this long routine. And they say that if you do this, you'll really prime yourself to perform well. That might be true for that individual, but there's no science that any single routine works for everyone. So what we found is that the best way to come to a routine is to do self-experimentation and figure out a routine that works for you. So it's almost like two separate findings, and I probably sound like a broken record, but to me it was kind of an aha moment when we, when we realized this, and the research supports it as well, which is yes, routines are extremely powerful, but there's no single right routine. They're extremely powerful if the person can figure out what it is that works for them. In the book, we spoke with someone named Dave Hamilton, who uh, coaches Olympic field hockey. And he's also an exercise scientist researcher. And what he did with his athletes is, is he really wanted to get into the nitty-gritty of, of what primes his players to compete well. So throughout a season, he would take their salivary samples and look for uh, cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and, and see what kind of routines would minimize cortisol and basically give their body the biochemical profile to perform well. And what he found is that there was enormous variation across his athletes. So some athletes would have a great biochemical profile after they got really stoked up. So maybe it was doing push-ups or some kind of short, high-intensity intervals, or even like a rah-rah, go-get-em speech. Whereas other athletes, they had a better biochemical profile after relaxation techniques like meditation or reflection or some alone time. So what he found, which again parallels what, what Steve and I found in research and reporting the book, is that to try to apply one routine across the board probably won't work. But if an individual can hone in on what makes them feel good and then replicate that, that can be very powerful. And is this routine thing something that you should do on a daily basis? And do you, should you also have a separate routine for training sessions and for races? Or on what different levels do these routines show up? It's a great question. I think that it depends on the person and, and what they're trying to, to accomplish. So lots of individuals that have more creative pursuits, or I guess what you could call intellectual pursuits as well, um, those routines are often, I work at the same desk, at the same computer, right, with the same coffee, at the same time of day. I know that when I wrote this book, I really went overboard. There's some science that shows that if, basically if you have a device that you only use for one thing, it helps kind of get your brain ready to do that one thing. Excuse me. So I had a computer that I only used for writing the book. It was my only use. I would never even open up the internet in it, right? Just the word processor. That's kind of an extreme, and that was tailored to my act of writing. Uh, I think that for triathletes, there, there could be many different applications. But yeah, I think that the two most basic are, do you have routines that you engage in before key workouts? And then do you have a routine that you can predictably engage in before your races? A lot of the benefit of routine is it just it, it lends a sense of predictability and comfort to an otherwise unpredictable and uncomfortable situation. So lots of uh, athletes, what we found, is that before a big race, many of them are feeling somewhat anxious, even world-class athletes, because they kind of know the pain that they're going to face in the race, and that's not always a very comfortable thing to think about. They don't know if they're going to have a mechanical, if they're you know a bike racer or a triathlete. They don't necessarily know what the competition's going to bring. They might not know the weather until the morning of the race. So there are all of these uncontrollables And we know just based on basic psychological science that humans don't like unpredictability. We like things to be very predictable. 
So what a routine does, it is allows you to get to this unpredictable situation and kind of almost calm yourself by giving yourself a sense of predictability and a sense of control over the situation. Yeah, that's a fantastic point. And uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, it's uh, it really is important and even more so for triathletes, especially long distance triathletes tend to travel and do very few races per year, but they might travel to all of them. So it's always a new venue, always uh, new, unfamiliar environments and surroundings. So everything is uncontrollable about your routine, your warm up and uh, and other things that you do before the race. There are things that you can control, as you say. So, so yeah. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of that as well. Yeah, the, the other thing that we found, sorry to interject, but I think that th- this is probably specifically relevant to athletes and, and many triathletes, is that there's this new body of research over the last two years that has to do with um, reappraising anxiety as excitement. And what this means is that if you're on the starting line of a race and you start to feel physiological sensations that you would commonly label as anxiety. So a rising heart rate, maybe your body temperature is, uh, is rising, your blood pressure could be rising. I mean, all the, every triathlete, well, I shouldn't say every, but most triathletes know what it's like to be a little bit anxious before a race. So what researchers found is that in individuals that try to calm themselves down, lots of them actually end up becoming more anxious. Because when you tell yourself, like, I need to take a deep breath and I need to calm down, you're almost reiterating that something's wrong, right? You're saying, like, oh, my gosh, I'm nervous. I need to calm down. Better take some deep breaths. But is something really wrong? So what the researchers did is they had a second group of people that were feeling the same emotions before an event. Rather than tell themselves to calm down, they said, tell yourself that you're excited, Like, the physiological sensations that we experience are neutral. It's only when we label them anxiety and try to tell ourselves, oh, something's wrong, I need to calm down, that they become bad. So what they found is that when people, rather than try to force themselves to calm down, just say, this is my body getting ready to go. The reason that my temperature is rising, the reason that my heart rate's rising, the reason that my blood pressure is rising is because I'm about to perform and nail it. So I'm not anxious, I'm excited. They tend to go on and outperform everyone. And what's really interesting is when you take this out of a lab and when we spoke with um, athletes, especially athletes in adventure sports, what we found is not necessarily what we were expecting. We were kind of expecting that they would be very calm, cool, collected, you know, maybe classically trained in meditation. That's not the case at all. They all told us that they feel fairly extreme emotions and, and even fear before free soloing a big mountain or taking on a huge rapid, this uh, a whitewater kayaker named Dane Jackson told us that he feels fear all the time. Or surfers, surfing like four-story waves. Someone named Nick Lamb says that he's extremely on edge before surfing. But what they all said is that they channel that, they channel those emotions in that heightened perception into their task. So to me, that's mind-boggling because so much prevailing wisdom is you should calm down. And what we learned is that, again, there's no one right routine for everyone. So for some people, calming down is actually the right approach. But for lots of people, it's better to stay jazzed up and just tell yourself, I'm excited, I'm ready to go. I'm going to use this heightened sense of awareness and this heightened sense of embodiment to crush my task. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. And that's something that I've used myself. I think that one exception for triathletes might be if you're actually 
not really really confident in your swimming abilities then what uh, triathlon coaches seem to think is that is that you should actually try to calm yourself down if you're really unconfident in confident in your swimming abilities for the open water swim and uh, there might, might be something to it because the excitement is not going to help you because you're not looking for like performance there you're just looking to have a safe and steady swim and, and get through it but but yeah for all other athletes if you want to actually have a good performance then then that might be a very good thing to to try out and see if it works we're uh, coming up towards the end of the show this interview seemed to get longer and longer and i think it's a testament to the guests that i'm having that, that i'm having, having so great conversations that that it's uh, really going on long i have a few qu- more questions for you so it's not there yet but uh, we have talked about all these three uh, overarching teams and uh, i will have links to the book and to your newsletter in the show notes and also you mentioned uh, your background and steve's background and in one of your recent mails you in your newsletter you you included the introduction to the book which i think was captivating so so i think if if it's okay i'll include a link to that direct newsletter as well so people can go and read that and hopefully that will get them jazzed up to go and get the book and pre-order that but uh, is, is there anything else any uh fascinating research study or just story or anecdote that came up during the book that you want to share with the audience? I keep on coming back to, to the stress plus rest equals growth. And I know it's something that seems so secondhand to many triathletes, especially uh, well-coached triathletes that, that follow that equation. But um, I've used that framework now to think about just about everything in my life. You could even think about how an organization grows, right? Using the same framework. Like an organization, if they take on way too much stress, which for an organization might be new projects or new products or new markets at once, they get ahead of themselves and they ultimately really struggle. I think it's the, the, the typical tale of kind of a small startup growing too fast and ultimately going bust. Uh, the flip side is if an organization doesn't take on any new challenge and doesn't stress themselves, they eventually get beat out by new entrants to the markets. So the best organizations, they tend to kind of actively push themselves just a little bit beyond what they're doing, a little bit beyond their comfort zone. But then they reflect, and I guess for an organization, what recovery would be is really like creating some space before they then take on the next new thing. You could think of a romantic relationship, right? Working very much the same way. A, a couple, I think that it's, it's, you know, I haven't necessarily seen this research, but I'd have a strong hunch it's out there that long-term sustainable relationships probably follow a very similar pattern where couples, they kind of take on more and more incrementally together, reflect on it, kind of absorb it before they then grow a capacity as a couple to take on more. So I think like this notion of stress plus rest equals growth for me personally has just been a very, very helpful framework in all areas of my life to try to strike a balance in that equation. Excellent. And that also probably answers what my next question would have been anyway. The big takeaway message for the audience and what action steps they can start taking today to work towards peak performance in both triathlon and in life. But uh I think unless you have anything to add, that that is the perfect way to answer that question. Yeah, it's funny. That is probably, that's my answer. And I think, you know, the other thing that I'll add in, because every opportunity to say this, I say it, there are no hacks. Like nothing makes me more sick. There are a lot of books in this genre that talk about the hacks. So if you, like kind of mentioned earlier with the routine, but if you just take these supplements or if you wear this weird electrical headband or if you intermittently fast and sleep, Like, no one of those things, not all of those things together, 
are going to make you a better performer. Like, per becoming better at anything is really, really hard, and it takes time, and the only way to do it is to embrace the journey. Um, so I'm kind of like becoming the anti-hack person, but I think that that's okay. Yeah, perfect. All right, so now we just have three rapid-fire questions, uh, and uh, then I'll let you go. So first, what's your favorite book, blog, or resource? So my favorite book is a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance um, by an author named Robert Persig, and uh, it's inspired probably all of my work, uh, you know, at its core is inspired by this book. What's that about? I've never heard of it. So I guess it depends on who you ask. Some people might say that the book is about motorcycling and how to take care of a motorcycle. Uh, I've never been on a motorcycle in my life. I have no interest in motorcycle maintenance. So to me, the book is really about how to develop uh, a craft and a relationship to a craft and, and to care deeply about a craft. Okay. What's a personal habit that's helped you achieve success? I think being very mindful Uh, and this is a more recent habit, but being very mindful about how I use technology and especially my smartphone. So when I have it on, when I have it with me, when I allow myself to check it versus when I keep it separate from me and maybe even put it in a different room or don't bring it with me. I think more and more people are, are, are having a challenge and struggling and, and getting kind of sucked into their phones um, and distracted by them. And it's something that I'm still trying to figure out. But what I've found is that being very mindful and deliberate about when I use my phone has been helpful. Yeah, I think there was some research uh, done that the average American uh, touches their phone, was it like 1,600 times a day or something like that? Yeah, well over a thousand, I, I believe it was at least so. And that made me stop and think uh, about my own habits as well with, with that smartphone. Yeah, we go Fine. into that in the book quite a bit. The, the, it's very, very hard to resist the temptation to check your phone. So the best advice supported by evidence is just to, to literally not have your phone in sight. So if yeah. you're working, keep it in the other room. If you're going out on a date with your partner, don't bring your phone to dinner because if you bring it, you're going to check it. Yeah, and uh, flight mode is great as well. If you yes, have, have flight mode is good, but I'm telling you, it's, it, it, listeners read the book, you'll see there's some wacky studies that even when people have a phone in their pocket and the phone is turned off, not even on flight mode, they still feel it vibrate. And their mind is still ever so slightly distracted by thinking about what could be happening on their phone. Are you referring to, I think there was a study done in uh, Starbucks cafes about a phone being on the table, not even belonging to any one of the persons having a conversation, and it still affected the quality of those conversations or something along those lines? Yeah, so exactly. Bingo. We wrote about that. Um, yeah, just okay. having a phone, and, and even if the phone's not yours. So if it yeah, was yeah, the researcher's yeah. phone. Exactly. So we could go on and on. Like I said, I mean, you're asking great questions and I'm enjoying this conversation, but I, I won't go down the wormhole of phones. But it was another one of my favorite topics in researching the book and has definitely changed how I go about using my phone day to day. Yeah. Okay. So finally, final question. What do you wish you had known or wish you had done differently at some point in your career? I think it probably goes back to the stress plus rest. Um, early on in my career, I was really good at the stress side of the equation and constantly challenging myself and taking on more stimulus. Um, but I didn't support it with the appropriate rest. And I would even say that's true when I first, you know, I first got into triathlon and endurance sports at the same time I was a consultant at McKinsey. And although I never suffered from classical overtraining, I, I was injured quite a bit. And I think my triathlon training mirrored my work ethic, which is right, like more hard work is better. And that's true. More hard work is better if you are supporting it with the right amount of rest and recuperation, which I don't think I was doing at the time. 
Okay, perfect. That's a great way to end this interview. And uh, yeah, I've been really, really enjoying this interview, Brad. So thank you for coming on. And uh, we will include all, and any final words to the listeners about the book and, uh, and where people can connect with you and find out more about the book. Yeah, so um, the book is available June 6th. But um, like I said, if you're listening to this before, pre-orders are quite important to the sales process. So if you enjoy the interview and you want to learn more, uh, Stephen, I'd very much appreciate if you consider pre-ordering the book. But you can also wait till June 6th. Um, and then uh, I am on Twitter at B. Stahlberg. And I try to be pretty... Uh, active and, and responsive. So would love to hear comments and thoughts on the interview, the topics that we discussed, and, and your own experience with them. Okay, thanks. And uh, please send uh, Steve my regards and the regards of the listeners of the show. We might just have him on, him on to talk about the science of running at some uh, future point. Yeah, I know Steve was bummed. He is in the middle of championship season uh, with his collegiate athletes, so he wasn't sure if he'd be coaching or not during this hour. Um, and he is something I really admire about Steve is is for pro for how prolific he is with his writing and public thinking. He always puts coaching first, um, which is really neat. It's a bummer that he couldn't be here today, but I admire him for that. Yeah. Okay. Thank you again, Brad, and uh, we'll catch up with you later. Okay. Thanks. All right. So I'm not going to give you any of my main takeaways right now because I really want to dig into this book in more detail. And I think that Brad did a much better job of doing that than I ever could. So, And I'm just going to make my own head spin anyway if I try to distill it any more than we already did on the interview. So uh, I just want to uh, be fired up about this for a couple of days because I, I really was after talking to Brad and, and how I can apply this and uh, in my own life and both for triathlon and outside of triathlon obviously so uh, yeah let's uh, end this episode right there on the next episode we will go back to talking about training zones and it will be training zones for cycling we'll talk both heart rate and power uh, and uh, some potential alternatives as well a little bit so that will be again maybe a more practical uh, training episode if you haven't already, go and listen to the previous episode with uh, with swimming training zones, which was on episode 27. Also, as we mentioned on this interview, you can go and listen to episode 17 with uh, Professor Samuele Marcora, because that has great relevance for, for this interview that you just heard. All right. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any feedback, send it to me on michael at scientifictriathlon.com and that's michael with a k and uh, please if you have a minute to spare and if you have been following along for a while uh, and you think that uh, you've been getting some value out of this show uh, it would really make my uh, month if you could go to itunes and rate and review the podcast because that is the best way really to spread the word about it because when people are searching in itunes it's based on those ratings and reviews that this show ranks and and i want to get in front of as many people as possible that's my purpose with this podcast and it's also just like brad said funnily enough uh, it's also to talk to great people like brad himself and and other and triathlon coaches obviously and, and athletes and listeners of the show so that that's one of the purposes but also trying to have an impact on as many age of triathletes lives as possible and uh yeah i do 
really check in on those downloads how many people do i have an impact on and how many triathletes can i help so getting those ratings and reviews help me do that and and fulfill my purpose with that triathlon show so uh, yeah uh, if it, it would make my month if you could help me fulfill that purpose scientifictriathlon.com forward slash rate is a direct link that will take you to where you can rate and review the podcast on itunes all right that's it we're going to end it right there keep training smart and keep loving triathlon <laughs>